So now we're going through, we've been going through uh, ever since June, Paul's letter to the, the Ephesians. So if you have your Bibles, turn to uh, the book of Ephesians with me. And really the reason why we're going through this is because we're trying to set up, Ephesians is probably one of the best books in the Bible that tells you about what the church is and is supposed to be. And the first three chapters lift you up into the heavenlies and tell you about this grand and glorious vision about what God desires for his church. And then the last three chapters bring you down into earth and say, these are how you live out these realities in your church, in the world, and in your workplaces, and in your families. So we're in chapter 5, and we're going to spend the next couple weeks uh, looking at 5 verses 18, 19, 20, uh, but we're going to use it as a launching pad to talk about music and talk about worship. Because one of the key things we do when we gather together is we sing. And so we're going to talk about why. So this morning we're going to talk about, uh, we're just going to kind of get a big picture of why God calls us to sing. So what are we doing when we sing? And I want to begin, I just want you to think about the power that music has in your life. Think about its power, the power of the songs we sing. So imagine you have a terrified toddler who wakes up into the middle of the night crying, and then mama comes in and scoops him up and starts singing the lullaby. And it's as she sings the song, the fears dissipate. It's a powerful song. Or you think about that same mother then 65 years later, and she's uh, almost plunged completely into the darkness of dementia, and she can't even remember the name of that terrified toddler. But yet, it's almost out of nowhere. She'll start remembering the words, some glad morning, when this life is over, I'll fly away. It comes back to her. It's a song that's entered into her soul, and then she'll sing it. It's a powerful song. Or you can think you can have a young couple who uh, is in the midst of one of their first fights and all of a sudden uh, their, their hearts are becoming hard and then out of nowhere they can hear Etta James sing the first line of At Last. And then all of a sudden that was their song, that was their first dance at their wedding. And in a moment, the, the hard hearts begin to soften. Music's powerful. You can think about a widow uh, who just out of nowhere gets hit by a tsunami of grief, and then she remembers the line, when peace like a river attendeth my way, and the song settles, settles her soul. Or on this Veterans Day, you can think about how you can have, you can have a thousand boisterous boys, and then all of a sudden they can hear the first crystal clear trumpet note of taps and instantly they're in a state of reverence. It's like, why? Why does music have such power over us or in us where it can help us remember things we should never forget and it can help us uh, forget things that should have never happened? Music is powerful, but it's not just powerful for us personally. Music's powerful for a people, for a group. Uh, Igor Stravinsky, when during the Soviet Revolution, said, if you don't take control of the music, you can't take control of the people. But control the music, you've got the people. So why? Or some historians actually chart the, you can tell the story of 20th century America by the music. 
Like there's some historians that tell the story of the 60s and they mark it as the country changed when the Beatles landed. You think, why? Why did it have such power? So songs are powerful. Why does it have that power? So we're going to spend a couple weeks just thinking about the music we sing, the songs we sing. And uh, this morning, I want us to think about three things, just the power of our songs, the problem of our songs, and then the production of his songs. And we've already, you know, in one sense, I don't have to prove to you the power of music. You know it. Something you know. So let's actually spend a few minutes looking at the text, kind of get our bearings for what it's telling us, and then we'll launch from there. So the the theme in uh, Ephesians chapter 4 through 6 is all, how do you walk? You have this tremendous calling from the Lord and this incredible calling and redemption that's yours in Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead has raised us to new life and then brings us together. And then how do you walk? And that's the theme. Walk, and then he says you need to walk worthy of this calling. You need to not walk like the Gentiles do or like they do in the world. And that's marked by, or what your life needs to be marked by a walk of, you need to walk in love, walk in light, Walk in wisdom. And then he's going to go on to tell us uh, the theme here is be filled with the Holy Spirit. Because if you're going to walk this way, you have to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And the way you do that, the marks of a Holy Spirit-filled life in people, is it's marked by the songs they sing and how they relate to one another. Songs and submission. So let's look at this. We'll pick up in verse 15 at chapter 5. Look carefully then how you walk. Not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of time because the days are evil. Therefore, don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Give thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another at a reverence for Christ. So here in this section, he's going to take, he's going to take an image and he's going to say, all right, uh, let's compare and contrast. Uh, he says, you know what it's like in essence to be drunk with wine, but don't be that, be filled with the spirit. And so then he's going to explain what that means. And there's actually five participles where he unpacks that. So there are words that end in ing that explain what does it mean to be filled with the spirit. And he says, you're going to be addressing people with, you're going to be singing making melody in your hearts, giving thanks, and then submitting. These are the marks of a spirit-filled life. You address, you sing, you make melody, you give thanks, and you submit to one another. You're not constantly demanding and claiming your rights. You're happy to submit to others. But of those five participles, it's really interesting that four of them directly relate to either how you talk or songs. Singing. You you are to address others, but notice how you're supposed to speak. It's in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. You're supposed to speak to one another actually in songs. Cynthia loves musicals. I do not. And one of the things I love to make fun of musicals because it seems like all they, they sing like, uh, hello, dear, I'm going to the bakery today. And it's like, no, that's not how the world is. Nobody sings that there was no milk at Publix. But in musicals, they just sing everything. Well, actually, this is claiming and saying your life should be like a musical. The way you should address one another should be in these spiritual 
Songs, psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. That's the outward expression. You're to sing and make melody in your heart. That's the inner disposition of your heart. You should have a thankful song. And you should always be giving thanks. And then notice what it says about thanks. When do you give thanks? Always. What do you give thanks for? Everything. Who do you give thanks to? God the Father. How do you give thanks? In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So what we see here is that the spirit-filled life is marked by a certain type of song and a certain type of willful, joyful submission. So we're going to spend the next couple weeks thinking about those songs. And notice uh, it says, you give thanks or you sing these songs, making melody, it's to the Lord. So that's the language of offering. So here under the new covenant, we bring our offerings of praise and singing. That's what we lay at the Lord's feet. So, how do we live the Spirit-filled life? Well, the way we do is by the songs we sing. We sing psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. So now let's think about this for a second. Why don't we? Why is our heart not filled with more of this music of thanksgiving? What's actually the problem with our songs? And the way I want you to kind of think about this this morning, what this is in essence going to be is going to be a big picture biblical theology of music. So what biblical theology is, is it traces the story of the Bible. And the story of the Bible is also the story of the world. The story of the world is this is God's good world, ruined by sin, redeemed by the Son, and being recreated by the Holy Spirit. That's the world story. Now what I want to ask this morning is how does music fit into that story? How, like, how was music originally created and intended? How has it gone wrong? And then how can we fix it? So that's what we're going to think about. And the way to get at this is let's think about first the problem of our songs. And uh, I don't know if you grew up in a tradition. I grew up in a religious tradition where we were very nervous about music. So I remember all the, uh, the youth group trips that we would go on every summer. It was marked by, so kids, these were back in the day of CDs. So it was marked in the CD. Uh, we would have CD burning. So every, every youth trip, the way we're, we were going to be dedicated and serious for Jesus is we're going to burn all of our secular music. And I don't even remember, you know, Larry Norman, why should the devil have all the good music? So there's all this good music out there, and the, the devil has it. And so the real problem was music is a problem, and we got to figure out how to keep the bad stuff out. So protect ourselves from the bad stuff. And I actually want you to think about that from another angle for a few minutes. Think about the, not the problem of bad music, but the problem of really good music. I wonder if you've ever thought that really good music actually is a problem if you don't believe in God, or if you don't believe in Christ, his redemption, his work. Actually, for the non-Christian, there's a real problem with music. Because if you're a committed materialist where, like, this world, the physicality of this world is all there is, and there's a materialistic explanation for everything, you know you have no real explanation for why music is meaningful, I mean, in the beginning, we talked about all these scenes where you know that music is powerful, but you really don't have any reason why. Because if all that exists is just the material world, all music is is just the vibration and manipulation of air. It is just the clanging and clashing of molecules. That's it. There was an interesting article several years ago on John Coltrane about his uh, Rolling Stone did this article on his album, A Love Supreme. 
And John Coltrane, he, uh, his, life, um, his life was a mess. It was, uh, he had plunged himself fully into the world of uh, sex, drugs, and jazz, and he was miraculously redeemed. The Lord saved him in this mighty way. And then he dedicated the rest of his life to offering an act back to the Lord of musical praise and musical sacrifice. And his album, which is hailed as the greatest jazz album of all time, A Love Supreme, was his offering back. The love supreme is the love of Christ for him that he encountered through the gospel. And uh, when he finished it, he, he played it at one time and said the nuke diminis when he was done. He said, now your servant can depart in peace. I have accomplished uh, the reason for my existence was to offer this musical act of praise. And uh, there was an interesting article in Rolling Stone because they were trying to unpack, you know, here's what's hailed as the greatest jazz album of all time, but it has this, you know, uh, inconvenient history that it was offered as an offering back to the living Lord. And uh, the writer uh, was saying some interesting things. Her name's Ashley Kahn, and I appreciated her honesty because in the writer, she says, this album causes a crisis of doubt for me. Because I'm committed that all music is just matter in motion, but it's really, not, it's really hard not to feel that there's a divine hand behind things. So she was listening to this great music and recognizing that intellectually, phys- uh, uh, philosophically, I have no real reason to be so moved by this music, but it still moves me. Why? Maybe there's just something deeper. You know, a couple years ago, several years ago, Cynthia and I were uh, going to Oxford to do, uh, I was doing a, a, a study trip, and I wanted to surprise her, so I got her tickets to uh, see Handel's Messiah. It was during December, so we were going to see the Messiah at uh, the Royal Albert Music Hall, and uh, not wanting to be a total Neanderthal, I asked one of my advisors, like, he had written a couple books on the Messiah, I was like, all right, help me learn something so I am not a total dunce as we go and get some appreciation for what I'm going to hear. And uh, he started telling me this fascinating story about the, there's a, so I was asking, all right, what CDs should I get so I could listen to it? Well, who's done the best version of the Messiah? And he said, actually, you need to find, I'm, totally, I'm not even trying to pronounce the Japanese composer because I totally butcher his name. But he says, you need to look up this person and what's actually happening in Japan. He said, there's an interest, it's a very uh, closed country, very resistant to the gospel. But he said, there's this underground revival happening uh, among the musical elites who go to Europe to study. So the, the leading experts in the world for the Messiah are actually Japanese. They're not British or English. And so there's this, this strain gets so wrapped up in the beauty of the music, it causes them to say, why would someone write music like this? It's tapping into something so much deeper into their soul. See, the problem is not just what do you do with the bad music. The problem is the reality that all good music is a witness to the reality of who God is. All good music is evangelistic. All good music forces you to face the reality that life is not meaningless. It's not random. It's not just filled with sound and fury, a tale told by an idiot. That there, someone has brought order and beauty to these realities. They're imposing order and imposing beauty. And where does that come from? The reason why music has that power is because it was uh, worked into the very fabric of our creation. This is God's good world. And the good world was created with music in the background. 
Job, chapter 38, when God is confronting Job, he says, Who is this that darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you. You make known to me. So God's going to call him to an account. Say, where were you when I created the, the cosmos and the heavenlies? Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? And tell me if you have any understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Who stretched the line out upon it? On what were its bases sunk, and who laid the cornerstone of creation? When the morning stars all sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy. And what God is confronting Job with, he says, when I spoke creation into existence, all of the heavenly beings sang a song of glory. Glory to God in the highest. They were singing his praise at creation. That's why C.S. Lewis in the Chronicles of Narnia, when Narnia is being created, do you remember how he has Aslan bring it into being? He sings it into being. He's singing creation. That's what Lewis is trying to help us see. And then Proverbs 8 talks about how Jesus was a personification of that wisdom. He was the singer of that song. So for non-Christians, music is in many ways a really big problem because it speaks of a glorious creator who takes all things and can work them for his own purposes and his own good. So it's worth thinking about that. Uh, It's worth being honest, kind of like Ashley Kahn was, where she said, this great music is actually causing me a crisis of doubt. It's causing me to question my own questions. So music can be a big problem, but it's also a problem for Christians as well. It's the problem uh, of our song, because the reality is that's how... Uh, we were created to sing the majestic, this melody of God's majesty, to join in creation in that song, to bring the, the harmony lines of happiness and holiness to the song of his majestic glory. Um, but we don't. That's not the song that creation is singing any longer. Because music's God's good gift, but it's been ruined. It's been tainted by sin. That's what Romans 8 talks about, that now all of creation now groans. It once sang, but now it groans. And it's groaning, waiting for the redemption that's going to be experienced by God's Son. All creation groans. We were created to join in created song and to make music and add to it and put in our songs of worship but now creation groans. It doesn't, we don't sing the glorious songs that we were meant to. So sin has destroyed the songs of creation. And then sin has tainted our songs as well. So we actually don't sing those songs any longer. So just think about your whole life. So instead of kind of thinking on the grand, you know, cosmic scale, just kind of think about your own life. If your life was a soundtrack... Or what is the soundtrack of your life? What would be the soundtrack of your life? You know, would it be uh, the blues, country and blues? Does, would the soundtrack of your life groan with creation? Would it be nobody knows the trouble I've seen? That'd be the soundtrack of your life? When I was in seminary uh, in Orlando, uh, the first time was about 04, 05, uh, and this was before the first housing kind of bubble. I worked in construction with my uncle, and I had a partner. My partner's name was Ernie. Ernie was this, this very colorful character who uh, had lived 
I don't know. I mean, he's like a cat. He had lived nine lives in his one and just kind of all over the place. He was, uh, his life was completely eaten up by uh, selfish addictions to drugs and, and other things. And we would drive down to Paramore, pick him up, and then we'd kind of come out. And we, would, we were kind of this, him and I were this motley crew of construction workers. And uh, I don't know how much we actually accomplished ever. And uh, this is when the iPad or iPod was first you know, coming out. So uh, you know, the, the thought of 3,000 songs in your pocket was amazing. Because you know, we're working you know, out in the hot sun all day, and it was totally boring. And, but Ernie did not need an iPad because he had 3,000 songs of the blues in his soul. And so we just start working, and he'd get in a rhythm where he just starts singing these songs, uh, songs of the blues. And he'd singing them, and, and it kind of get it. We'd get in a rhythm, and one day we were at lunch, and we were sitting at a gas station eating our lunch hot dog and nacho cheese. And I uh, said, Ernie, I'd like for you to, I'd like to learn about the blues. Can you teach me about the blues? And uh, he just kind of looked at me pretty annoyed. Like, who's this kid asking me these dumb questions? And he just thought about it for a second, and then he looked at me and goes, no, nah, uh-uh. You can't never learn to sing the blues. You can't sing the blues until you live the blues. And he laughed and he goes, you ain't never going to live the blues. And so you have to live it. And of course, I guess he just assumed that the devastation that sin causes is never going to touch me. But the reality is so many of our songs, is, is it, would the soundtrack of your life be you know, a blues song? Or maybe the soundtrack of your life at this stage is just like a typical pop song, which is just trite and vapid and airy with actually nothing in it. So you listen to your standard pop song, and it's like, what are they actually saying or talking about? Who knows? And maybe that'd be the soundtrack of your life. Or maybe the soundtrack of your life would follow. Cynthia's not here, so I'm going to tell on her. So one of the things we love, so kind of confession time from the Bailey house. One of the things we love is we love rap music. (laughs) And... uh, Actually, I think rap music is an incredible apologetic for the reality of the truth of the Bible. Because one of the things the Bible says is the Bible says we are made with both dignity and depravity. And if you don't believe in the Bible, you have to find a way to explain how come humans can do such extraordinary things with creative dignity and yet also do things that are filled with such depravity. And we listen to rap music and the the rhythm and the linguistic gymnastics that those guys make, it's just, it is a modern marvel. And then yet you look at the content of what they're saying, it's nothing but vile, violent trash. So how do these two things live together where your, your subject matter is so vile and yet the way you communicate it is so skillful? It's because we're d- dignity and depravity. We're depraved. We're made in God's image and yet all things have been touched and stained and ruined by sin. But maybe, maybe the soundtrack of your life would be a rap song, vulgar and vile or a song. You know, what would it be? Would it be a song filled with complaints, song filled with grumbling? Or maybe the song of your life would be no song at all. But maybe just be silence. Maybe you'd say, as a young man, I had this in, in, an optimistic, enthusiastic, joyful, energetic song, but a man can only fail so many times before he just stops singing. You know, today is November 11th, so this is the 100th anniversary of Veterans Day. We remember the 100th anniversary of the signing of the armistice that ended World War I. So you think about World War I, um, 
November 11th, 1918, World War I cut a, it cut a scar through the heart of continental Europe that has still not healed. And so you read the stories of how in 1914, from all over continental Europe, they were running headlong into this war, and it was these songs of optimistic patriotism and kind of going to be seeking glory on the battlefield. And then in just four years, an entire generation of Europe's best had died in the trenches. And those songs uh, stopped. They were no longer optimistic songs of joy. They were songs of devastation, songs of brokenness, songs of death. You know, how um, songs that died in the trenches. So maybe in a small scale, you've experience something like that. That's where we get the term shell shock because the whole generation went through PTSD. Or maybe you're a young woman here and you, at one time you sang a joyful, innocent song and then in one dark, terrible moment from an act of aggression and violation, your song was stolen from you. And you wonder, will I ever be able to sing again? Will I ever have my song of joy returned to me. See, the problem with our music is that we were created to sing these songs of glory and joy, and yet sin has taken them from us. So in all creation is not singing the song it was meant to sing. So how do we fix it? Where can we go to have our songs renewed and restored? And the way you go is the third thing is you go to the production of his song. How do you produce this glorious music, this spirit-filled life? Because what redemption is, the story of the world and the story of music is that uh, music was created good as part of God's good world. It's been ruined by sin, but it's going to be redeemed by the Holy Spirit. And so we, uh, redemption is the returning of all creation to the music and harmony it had in the beginning, where the groaning is taken out, the silence is filled, and the, 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 the violence and the vileness is dealt with and destroyed, so all that's left is the beauty and the harmony of redemption. So how can we sing those songs again? There's two things we got here if you're going to sing these songs, a couple things. You got to follow the lead singer, and you got to know the notes. So if you're going to join in the song of redemption, you got to follow the lead singer, and you got to know the notes. One of the things we're going to spend a couple weeks kind of thinking about is how does music incorporate and what role does it play in our worship service? And in my opinion, two of the most important biblical books for understanding these concepts are found in Leviticus and Hebrews. Leviticus, that might surprise you, but that'll tell you what it means to enter into the Lord's presence. What is required to come into the Lord's presence? And then he brought into his heavenly prayer of all real worship at his feet. He's actually the lead preacher and the lead singer of all real Christian worship. And you look at Hebrews chapter 2, because that really is getting at the, the heart of how can our songs of brokenness be turned into songs of joy? And what the first part of Hebrews 2 is is a meditation on Psalm 22. You know, Psalm 22 is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's a song about abandonment. And why has God uh, forsaken David and then ultimately David's greater son, Jesus, on the cross? And then it comes in Hebrews chapter 2, 10, where it's talking about Jesus, how he went before us and paved a way for our salvation. It says, for it was fitting that he, 
for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons and daughters to glory, should make the founder of our salvation perfect through suffering. So he had to pass through that dark, terrible song of abandonment, song of silence on the cross, so he could come to a place to bring us with him to a place of glory. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That's why he's not ashamed to call you his brothers and sisters. And then once he brings you into his presence, lifts you up to the heavenly places, then he says, I, Jesus, will tell of your name, God's name, to all of them. So I will be the one who's speaking your praise and your majesty and your glory. And then it says, in the midst of the congregation, when they gather I will sing your praises. So when God's people gather, the primary lead worshiper is Jesus himself, and we are joining into his song. So we actually don't have the freedom and the liberty. Like when we come to worship, this is not a concert where you have like the person up front kind of leading the worship. We are all joining in with his song that he's already singing in the presence of the living Lord. And he says, if you'll be filled with the Spirit and have this song transform your life, then you're going to have to get your voice in tune with the lead singer, who is Jesus himself. He's singing a song. And the beautiful thing about this, it's not a song about us. He says, I'm going to sing and declare of your God's praise, your name, his glory. He's actually drawing us into the song, which is the story of the world, that this was his good world. It has been ruined by sin. Christ's death is going to redeem it, and the Holy Spirit's recreating it. We get drawn into that song and that story. And it's so much bigger and more powerful and more beautiful than the lonely little soundtrack that we can try and manufacture of our own life. And once you get drawn into that song, your life really will be able to sing. I'm a terrible singer. I can't carry a tune in a bucket, as you've already even heard a little bit this morning. But my wife and I, we can sing an amazing duet. Her and I together can sing an amazing duet, but the secret to our duets is for you to only hear her and not hear my voice at all. And so one of the, it's rare, one of the privileges that sometimes we have is because so often we don't get to sing and worship together. Because, you know, she's up here, I'm over there, then we swap. And, and so there's times where we have the opportunity to sing and worship together. And I have to encourage her, you know, sing. Like, I can't sing unless you sing. Because if there's even the, this is why I stand under the speaker. Because if there's even the, the thought that my voice is going to be heard by anyone else, uh, because it's so, it's so weak and crackly and, and, and is, is singing the wrong note and the wrong key and the wrong chord and all of those things. But... If I can somehow let my voice get lost in her voice, we'll sound good. Let my voice get lost in yours. And that's the reality of living the Christian life when we can sing a song of redemption and we can let our voice get lost in his voice. You know, the song of your life is always going to be broken. It's always going to be sung off key as long as you're not following him. But the beauty of Colossians 3 is that you have died. Your life is now hidden. It's hidden with Christ. It's taken up in his. And so it's no longer our weak, broken, shaky, off-key lives that the Lord sees. It sees us hidden in him. And so now we can live lives that are strong, obedient, holy, even considered perfect in God's sight because we are united in him. 
You know, one of the things we don't really have anybody kind of growing up in the church I grew up in, we would every, you know, fifth Sunday, we'd have things called Fifth Sunday Sings. And uh, we'd often, they'd have people like the Willis brothers. And you're the Willis brothers who'd come in. They wouldn't even be brothers, but they were four of them. And it was like, a, you know, the, the barbershop quartet. And uh, they used to, I remember hearing them say things like, you know, when they, would, when they would all hit the perfect notes, it would sound like there's a fifth voice. You hear this fifth voice. And that's living the Christian life. There's another voice that comes in and sings with us. So you have to join in the lead singer. You have to follow his cues, his notes, his song. That's what discipleship is. It's following him. But the next thing you got to do if you're going to sing the right song is you got to know the notes. You got to know the words. That's why we're told to let the word of Christ richly dwell. Dwell in you. Because those are the notes. Those are the words. That's the soundtrack. The word provides us the words that we're to sing. And when the words richly dwell in us, then we begin to move to the rhythm of redemption. We begin to have our hearts tuned to thankfulness. We begin to sing the songs of the Spirit. So the question is, how do we make that happen there's some wonderful passages in this whole section in Psalms from Psalm 91 all the way to about 105 where it's bringing you into the presence together and commanding you to sing. And here's a little interesting Bible trivia. Do you know what the number one command in the Bible is? The thing that God commands his people to do more than anything else. It's kind of a trick question. I'm setting you up. The number one is pray. Pray. Call out to me. But you know what the number two is? Sing. Sing. And in this whole section of Psalms from 90 all the way to about 105, it's over and over, sing to the Lord, come into his presence, gather and sing. Listen to Psalm 98, 4. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of the melody, with the trumpets, the sound of the horn. Make a joyful noise. I love that phrase, noise. We're not required to make a joyful concerto. It's noise. Anybody can make noise. Let the sea roar, let all that fills it, the world and all those that dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands and the hills sing for joy. This is a song that creation will come and join in the song of redemption. And we're all summoned into his presence. But how? How do you get there? What motivates or propels the song? You have to go back to Psalm 98 verse 1. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. He's done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known, made known his salvation. The Lord has revealed his righteousness into the sight of all nations. So when did he do that? How did he make known to us his salvation? How did he reveal his mighty right hand and his holy arm? It was on the cross. See, what transforms and renews and restores our broken song is his broken body on the cross. See, on the cross, he sang the ultimate song of lament and groaning, the ultimate blues song, so that we, by faith and repentance in him, can sing the ultimate song of joy and victory. See, on the cross, he, he sang this amazing, uh, agonizing cry of abandonment. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He sang that song of abandonment so we could sing the song of reconciliation. And then on the cross, one of the things the writers go out of their way to show you that there was deep, dark silence. And on the cross, he entered into the ultimate silence 
so that we could be given back the ultimate songs. So think about your, your life this week. What kind of songs have your life been singing? Songs of grumbling, songs of complaining, songs of trite, just trivial songs, or maybe no song at all. So this morning, what we want to do is we want to come to him. We want to come to him and seek the transformation that can fill you with a new song of thanksgiving and joy. We want to come to him and seek his new song, the song of redemption, and join with his, his singing in our congregation. So what's our goal, our desire in our times of worship when we come? Our times of worship when we come is to tap into, to experience, to take part in the song of redemption that he's already singing over us. So let's pray and ask the Lord to make this a reality in our life.